This morning we begin a um, post-Easter series on the question of why. And just so you know, um, we left Easter up a little bit longer this year because I don't think it's fair, quite honestly, that we celebrate the birth of Jesus with four Sundays of Advent and only one Sunday of resurrection. Um, And it actually is um, fitting in light of um, what took place yesterday and last night. So... um, Post-Easter, why? The question is, is, is why? There's three parts to this. The first two are, are in my opinion, the most important. Well, I don't want to say it's the most important, but um, why believe and why the Bible? Um, now, you know, I can go anywhere with this. Why believe? You know, it's so broad. It's wide. I, it's huge. Um, this morning, I want to um, focus more particularly in terms of why believe. Why believe in the God that is portrayed or revealed um, in the Bible? That's, that's really the question. And my hope is that for those of you who do believe already, that this will actually strengthen your faith. Um, it'll affirm that what you believe is actually real. It's, it's not a fiction. It's not a myth. It's not a tale. But it's rooted in real history. Uh, and so I hope it affirms you. I, I hope, hope for those who maybe were here at Easter and um, are here as a result of, well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, I'm hoping this will at least give you food for thought. Um, and it might clear the way for you to actually... Um, come to believe something that changes your life. And so that's, that's kind of um, the aim this morning. I want to say that um, starting out and answering the question, why believe? Why believe that God is portrayed, the God that is portrayed in Scripture or in the Bible? And um, one thing I want to say is that, that the two questions, why believe in the God of the Bible and why believe the Bible, really are two parts of the same question. Because um, if the Bible is not reliable, then why would we believe the story about who God is? So you realize, I realize that both of these messages are, are complements to each other. Uh, so if you feel like there's a bit of a, um, an unresolved tension at the end of this message, well, you've got to come back next week, all right, and understand the second question. Why, why, do, why should we trust what the Bible uh, reveals to us about God? Now, before I get to answering the, the question of why believe in the God that's portrayed in the Bible, um, I want to take a, a moment just to make three observations about believe, about the word believe or, or faith. I'm going to use those words interchangeably. Um, one observation is, is how we as a culture tend to view and speak about faith as it pertains to religion. And that is when we speak about faith as it pertains to religion, I'm not talking about you in here necessarily, I'm talking about how our culture speaks of it, is that we often view the idea of faith as subjective, relative, and private. That is, it's relative. Um, so, I'm a Christian, you're a Hindu, I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, the fact is, or the thing that matters is you believe something. Um, And it doesn't have to be that faith in a religious context, doesn't have to be um, attached to reality for it to be valid. That is um, part of how our society looks at or talks about this idea of faith. It's not the way the Bible uses the word believe or faith, uh, nor um, is it the way that it really works, like that Everybody's faith claim is equal. You have your belief, I have my belief, they're they're more or less equal. It just simply doesn't work itself out in in human experience, and it certainly doesn't in the the Bible. Um, I'm going to be facetious here, but um, you can imagine two guys standing on the edge of a cliff, and the one says to the other, I believe that if I jump off this cliff, that the Easter bunny is going to save me. The other one saying, well, I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. I believe in gravity, and so I'm going to stay right where I am. You realize at that moment, those two faiths are not equal. 
One's going to live and one's going to die as a result of what they believe. That is, faiths are not equal. Um, Observation number two is that in Scripture, faith is only as good as the integrity of its object. That is, um, it's only if what we believe is real, if it's concrete, if it's historical, if it's worthy, if it has character and integrity to it. If, if it's not real, if it's a myth or a fiction, then faith is junk. Uh, Paul made that point really clear in 1 Corinthians 15, and he said, Listen, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead historically and physically, then we are above all people to be most pitied. In other words, why believe it at all? So faith is only as good as the reality of the thing we believe or we trust in. Faiths are not equal. Third observation that's important to make with regards to belief and faith is that everybody has faith in something. That is, everybody interprets life, our surroundings, the world around us, um, based upon faith assumptions. There's... um, We as Christians, we can't put God in a test tube and prove that he exists in the same way that an atheist cannot put not God in a test tube and show that he doesn't exist. As one believes he does, the other believes he doesn't, and both of those, at the end of the day, are unprovable facts of belief. Facts of belief, unprovable beliefs or assumptions about life. Um, The same can be said of somebody who says, listen, I I I I don't have faith. I'm, I believe in science. It's funny you say, I believe in science. I, I, I only believe what could be tr- proven. And the fact of the matter is, someone who says that is either ignorant or just dishonest. You, you, we can't prove where we come from. We can't prove how, how the, um, you know, everything started, the origin of the universe, how everything sustains itself. At the end of the day, those are issues of faith. And just to recognize, like, the, to even the playing field, everybody has faith in something. There was a, a physicist, a Jewish physicist in, um, in uh, Britain who, and I, I don't, to my knowledge, is not a believer, but he, he, he was at least honest, uh, honest enough to recognize that the whole evolutionary story, which is the, really the alternate story of there being a God who creates, um, he was honest, 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 honest enough to say that it, it really becomes somewhat of a religion uh, he said, evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it. And here, I, that's my word, faith. They've accepted it and its suppositions and assumptions. And many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. He, got, he took some real heat from his friends over this statement and this article. That is to simply say that Everybody has faith in something, and we interpret the facts of the world according to those unprovable faith assumptions. Um, That means that it's not just why you believe. It's what you believe, and then why. Because everybody believes in something. The question is, what is it? And then, why do you believe it? So, those are the three observations. How cultural... Culture tends to use the word faith in a very subjective, relative way. Um, And again, life experience in the Bible would say, listen, faith is only as good as its object. Whether it's real, it's historical, it's true. Um, And the last one is that at the end of the day, when it boils right down to it, every worldview has underneath it this idea of faith or belief in untestable uh, assumptions. So with that said, 
Let me uh, draw your attention to two reasons to believe. I'm going to stick, kind of keep it just focused on creation and redemption. Creation and redemption, because we only have 30 minutes. Why believe? Because creation reveals that God is and is glorious. Because creation reveals that God is and is glorious. You know, I, I stay in the light. I, I, I love the, the name that God revealed himself with in the Old Testament. You know, it's brilliant, it's simple, um, and it's telling. When Moses said, listen, I'm going down to Egypt, who should I say sent me other than the generic name of God? You know what it is. Uh, God said to him, listen, you tell him, tell them that the I am sent you. It's, it's the most simple verb in English and Hebrew. It's is. You tell them that the is or the am sent you. A statement of existence, a statement of being, suggesting not only that God is eternal, but he is the, the fountain of all of life, the source of all of life, the origin of all of life. He is being. He is, he is, and he is glorious. The Bible opens up without apology and without defense, saying, in the beginning, God, the is, the being, created the heavens and the earth, period. And that is what we see around us. That is the, that is the, the, the foundation. Now, that's not necessarily a reason to believe, but that's the starting point. Um, the scripture tells us that, that, um, that in that creation that God has, has um, unraveled before us, unfolded before us, that he is revealed in it. That is everything around us is communicating all the time. It's speaking. It's declaring. It's proclaiming. It's transmitting communication to us 24-7. In the, in the passages that Chris j- just read, uh, Psalm 19, you know, you see um, that, that the communication is constant and you see that it's universal, that is, it takes place everywhere. The heavens declare, that's a, that's a, that's a it's, it's communicating, it's telling, it's speaking um, the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. It's a day and night. There's speech going out. It's constant. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. It's constantly happening to you and it's everywhere. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. In other words, constant and it's everywhere. This communication that God is and God is glorious. And Paul would also go on to say, in the, flipping to the New Testament, not only is it constant, not only is it universal, but this constant speech is clear and it's plain. For what can be known about God is, underlined word, plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, they see clearly, plainly, the eternal power of God in the things that have been made. So there you have what the Bible says. All creation around us is screaming at us. It is telling us. It is declaring to us that there is a God, that he is glorious, constantly, universally, and plainly. 
One of the ways we see that, of course, is right here. One of the things that's revealed about God is, is his power. And, and that was the Romans verse. that we see his, his divine power, his eternal power in creation. In this light, or in this vein, I should say, um, both the Christian and the evolutionary atheist are on the same page that everything we know and everything we see is a result of a massive unleashing of power. Both are agreed. Everything we see is a massive unleashing of power. Now, people who are persuaded that that massive unleashing of power uh, was caused by an explosion, or we call it the Big Bang, right, believe, and this is interesting and it's, it's uh, fascinating, um, that they believe that everything that we know and see and touch and smell and see through a telescope or through a microscope um, is a result of, of a singularity, interesting word, singularity, which is defined as um, infinite mass, like the mass of the entire universe, infinite mass compressed into a particle that is a million billion times smaller than an atom, right? You're going to see that in a second, but think about this. Put, put, try to wrap your head around this. Infinite mass compressed into a particle that's a million billion times smaller than an atom. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. And out of that unleashed everything we know, everything that's massive amounts of power come from this, this particle. And it's interesting, you know, when, when, when you ask then a person who says, yeah, it all came out of this particle, you ask the question, so where did the particle come from? Right? Where, where, where did the particle come from? And, and, and at th- th- this point, it's all untestable hypothesis, right? String theory, double-headed time theory, different kinds of theories. Uh, the, one of the later ones, the boundary theory. And you just realize they don't know. Don't know. Remember how I said it? At the end of the day, you, you come down to an issue of belief, right? Come down to... a um, issue of belief. So most of you guys know the name Stephen Hawking. He's like pretty much smarter than everybody in this room put together, right? A physicist. And well, he, he wrote this about this singularity. Just you can actually go look this up if you want to. These are his words on his webpage, right? His article, if you can get through it. At this time, talking about the Big Bang, the Big Bang, all the matter in the universe would have been on top of itself. That's the compression. The density would have been infinite. Um, It would have been what is called a singularity and at a singularity. And here's the part I want you to notice. All the laws of physics would have been broken down. All the laws of physics would have been broken down at this moment. How do we know things? Well, we know things by examining them according to the laws of physics. But what they're saying, what he's saying is that they don't apply to this. Right? Just, it doesn't apply. Which means we don't really know. You follow? It's just, we don't know. That's at the end of the day, we, we just don't, don't know. Like I, like, like I told you, at the end of the day, it comes down to certain faith assumptions. You know, I, I will be tell you that, you know, someone asks me, and some people think it's a cop-out when we, we say things like, well, listen, I don't understand how the Trinity works. I don't. I still don't. I don't know if I ever will. But I know it's revealed in the Bible, and, and, I, and I trust it. 
I, I don't know how Jesus can be fully God and fully man at the same time. I don't know. I just know that the Bible teaches it and I trust it. And someone on the other side of the God fence would say, well, that's just a cop-out, Dan. Just faith and mystery. I'm like, well, let's just back up to the particle for a second. <laughs> you can explain that to me? It's like, you tell me how an infinite mass can be compressed into something you can't even see that's not bound by the laws of nature. That's ridiculous, too. So you realize, and it's, you have these two alternative stories. Either God did it or, 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 or some kind of spontaneous molecular combustion. I, I don't know. Those, the Bible beautifully tells us that it's not a what started the universe, but it's a who. It means that, that we're not alone in a cold mechanical universe that came out of nothing and is going back to nothing, which is really pointless, purposeless, futile, and meaningless. That's, at the end of the day, that's what it is. that story is. The other story says there's a who out there. There's a person out there. There's a person who's beautiful and has power and creates. Which story do you want to believe? Or something else, again, that... I think we're wired to do that would point us in the direction of oh, God is and he is glorious. It's just we look around and we see things that are complex and diverse working together in an orderly, harmonious fashion to accomplish particular purposes and functions. And our, our, our brains are wired so that when we see design or we see symmetry, we see things that are um, complex but working together we're hardwired to know that like someone actually made that, right? That's, we're, we're hardwired that way. And, and to not think that way is to rewire our thinking, is to rewire how we know things. Brought some props. Rock, right? I don't know which mountain I got this on. I collect rocks. It's kind of a stupid hobby, but I collect rocks. You know, from, from all outward appearances, this rock has no symmetry. Is, there's no complexity, at least to the naked eye. And, and um, there's no diversity to lead to a particular purpose or function. You, you, you find this out in the ground, you're like, eh, did someone make that? Mm, maybe, maybe not. There's, there's nothing that would tell us that it was made other than your theology. So... Years ago, I was walking in the ruins of Lachish, which is uh, in Israel, ancient Tel, which is layers and layers of civilization in one place. There were all kinds of rocks and stuff, and, and I stumbled across this. Now, I, I might have been against the law to take this, I don't know. But I saw it, and um, <laughs> I didn't ask. Don't ask, don't tell. I just, like, I was just going <laughs> to. So I, I picked it up, and I'm like, it's cool. I actually found something that actually could be thousands of years old, right? Like, it has, it has design. It has a ridge here, and it's, it's, it's somewhat, um, some of it's been worn off. You can tell there's a symmetry here. I mean, things don't typically form in that kind of fashion. It looks like a D, doesn't it? <laughs> but it also has kind of a, like, concave edge, and that, that there's an appearance of function. There's, there's a certain amount of complexity and diversity, and, and it looks like it was, like, you know, pot or a cup, coffee cup, Starbucks cup, I don't know. <laughs> that is, I picked it up because I'm convinced someone made it, and it's actually worth having on my shelf, right? But, but it's not that complex. It's not that diverse. Um, someone might say, nah, nah that's, just a, that's just a freak of nature. It just happened. Okay. In that case, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Okay, so, so how about this? Right? <laughs> 
I mean, I don't know how many parts this has, but I know it has lots of diverse parts, and they all work in harmony t- together to provide one major purpose and function, and that is to communicate, and what, a, what an amazing thing it is. And I don't know of anybody who would find this lying on the ground saying, oh, wow, accident. This is awesome. I've never seen an accident so well put together. We're not wired to think that way. No, we, we look at it and go, man, someone brilliant, someone like the late Steve Jobs created this, right? This is his vision. Like, we know design. We're hardwired to think. This, there's this complex design working together to, co- to a common function. That's, there's got to be a maker. This, I'm saying we're wired to, to interpret things that way and know things that way. We actually have to unwire our brain to think differently. Or let's go bigger. And this next one scares me, which is why I know how many parts it has. I know most of you know I don't like to fly. Here's a Boeing 747. They say, and I have to take it on somebody's word because I've never counted the parts of a 747. I don't think I could count the parts. Three million parts, all moving together, hopefully, in harmony, hopefully, (laughs) to accomplish a common purpose, hopefully, of keeping this beast in the air until you land safely. Three million parts, complexity, all this diversity working together for a common function. There's nobody that I know of that would think, wow, um, that wasn't made. Somebody brilliant made that. Someone wise made that. An engineer made that. Or let's, let's go bigger. I haven't counted this either. I have to take it on someone's word that there are somewhere between 7D and 100 trillion cell parts. Somewhere between 70 and 100 trillion cell parts in you right now. And they are all doing, if you're healthy, they're doing their jobs to give you life and to make you a human. That's, that's, that, 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 that makes the iPhone look like a rock. It makes the 747 look like a handle. And the Bible says, you know, it says, listen, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You are so complex, and the diversity of your systems, so amazing. And you know what? We don't need fossil fuel. We actually burn energy that is environmentally friendly. Now, who thought of that? (laughs) God did. It's the only one, and it actually benefits creation for us to breathe in and out, and the plants, you know, turn our carbon dioxide into oxygen. It's, wow, you mean it all works together? Why, yes, it does, because not only is this a very complex system, but the entire ecosystem is a complex structure that actually benefits and works together, right? And, it, you know, you add on top of the, our, our humanity, you know, you got aardvarks, armadillos, and camels, and you have uh, rhinos and hippopotamuses, and, you know, and then a whole bunch of animals that have gone extinct or buried in the, in, the, in, the, in the fossil records, all of which have these highly complex systems that are part of big complex systems. Now, again, what, is, what does your heart tell you? What does your mind tell you? What, what is the way in which we're, we're, we're wired to think tell you? What it tells me is, is, is that all of creation is screaming at us, that it's communicating, it's declaring that, like, God is amazing. That's what it's doing. He's glorious. He's wonderful. He's like, I can't imagine. I, I, you know, for, for me, um, when, 
When I actually take the time, and I, I'm probably speaking for most everybody who believes here, when I take the time to get out of my head and really take in what's around me, I just want to sing. It's like you just take it in, and you're just like, oh, my goodness. Like no, no artist can paint this. Praise the Lord, you know. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty works. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Why? Because everything around us is awesome. That's, see, that's, why believe? It's all around you. It's all around us. And I don't mean to be insensitive in saying this, if this is, this is your bent, but listen, I mean, there's a way of, of overthinking things that bypasses thinking, right? Or using your brain to create such complex alternative stories that almost border insanity. Like, listen, it's plain. It's right here. Like God's like, hello, I paint for you every morning at sunrise and every evening at sunset. It's me. It's my brush. It's my paint. You are a proof that I exist. Dan Deckard is a proof that God exists. You are proof that God exists. So, on a completely just, I mean, what a story. Man, the evidence is there. Which one do you want to believe? Cold, dark, mechanical, out of nothing, random, dark universe that's going to explode and implode. That, that sounds really poetic. That sounds really optimistic. But on the other side, it's like there's another Faith assumption, the I am, the is. He's the ground of all being, and he's the one who caused it, and great unleashing of power. Incidentally, I don't have any problem with the Big Bang so much, as long as God's behind the Big Bang, right? Genesis doesn't tell us how he created, it just says he created it by the word of his mouth. If he wanted to do it from a sliver, he could. I'm okay with that. Um, But he did it. It wasn't an accident. That's one reason to believe. And the second one is, Significantly shorter for those of you who are concerned about the time. Redemption. Now here, my, my aim is to, to show you that the way in which God has worked to save or redeem or rescue us is reasonable, rational, and logical. Um, why believe? Because redemption, that is um, the story of the Bible, reveals that God is impeccably just and immeasurably loving. Just and loving. Now, let me just single out three truths for you here, and I I want you to try and mentally put them together with me. Uh, The Bible insists that God is impeccably and absolutely just. He is right in all he does, and he punishes all that's wrong. That's justice. At the same time, the Bible is crystal clear repeatedly all the way through from Genesis to revelation that God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness. So justice and love. Justice and mercy. Those two things. Keep those in your head. It also declares a truth about us. Um, that while we were made noble and majestic creatures after the likeness of God, um, we were corrupted. And you know the word that we use for this is sin. Um, that is, we are inclined to do negative, evil, and um, harmful things. So we are categorically and experientially sinners. Okay, put those three twos together. We are, in this room, 
categorically, apart from grace, sinners. God is impeccably just and does what's right all the time and punishes, uh, punishes wrong, and yet God is forgiving and merciful. Now, you should feel a bit of a tension here. Like, a tension within God's own heart between his commitment to justice, his commitment to forgiveness, and us as fallen sinners. How can he be just and forgive us? Like, how can those two coexist in the heart of God towards you and towards me? You, you can sense the tension if you, um, in Scripture, it's, it's as thick as fog, maybe thicker, like lead, metal. This is the Lord passing before Moses and his big reveal. He declares who he is in word, and, um, and this is the word, the Lord, the Lord, or this is the I am, the I am, or is, is. Um, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you were to stop there, all of us would say, yeah, that's awesome. Forgiveness and grace and love and faithfulness and forgiveness for thousands. But then the next part is a complete reverse of that and insists that God is perfectly and impeccably just. But who will by no means clear the guilty. He's not going to let anybody off. He's not going to pardon anybody. How? How? (laughs) It's a bit of a theological conundrum. An enigma. Yahweh, the is, is impeccably just. And he is abounding in love and forgiveness. So how? how? Okay, how? How does he punish me and pardon me at the same time? Because this verse, these verses say that he has to do both. And pardon and punishment don't go together. How can he forgive me and yet not clear me? Major dilemma, it's a problem. A logical, theological, ideological problem. How is this resolved? There's only one resolution to this. And by the way, if God was not impeccably just and if he was not abounding in love, he would not be good if he was not both of those things 150%. If you sacrifice one, he's not good. So how do we keep them together and resolve the problem of pardon and punishment at the same time? The logical conclusion, the theological conclusion, the reasonable conclusion The only conclusion is that it was resolved at the cross of Jesus. Where God could satisfy his commitment to just by punishing the one instead of the many. And if justice is satisfied, then he can be merciful, pardon, and forgive us completely and freely. It's it's the only resolution. And again, I say this because I I want us to... Just be firm in the fact that the salvation that God has accomplished for us is logical, it's reasonable, and it makes sense to us. Or you transition into the New Testament, just to put a verse under this, that God has forgiven us all our trespasses, not just some, but all of them. And not, no, I'm not going to say that. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands that he set aside... How can he do that? 
because he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. So that in order to resolve the tension, God sent himself to satisfy justice so that he could love us and be merciful and forgive us. Now, let me put this in terms of more of an apologetic or a a reason to believe. Um, Years ago, some of you may have heard a little bit of my story about a bit of a, not a a faith crisis, I think that would be an overstatement, but a time in which I I began to question my faith. And the the place where I questioned my faith, I should say the time was 1991, the place was Jerusalem. Um, The context was a classroom. Uh, You know, in Israel, if you're a believer in Jesus, that he's the Messiah, um, and you believe he came to save us from our sin and rose from the dead, you are in an extreme minority, right? They're either Jewish or they're Muslim. And we're surrounded by Jewish and Muslim people. You know, couldn't hardly find other Christians. And I just happened to be taking a class called Jewish Thought and Practice, taught by a Jewish rabbi, right? And he's talking about Yahweh in the Old Testament. I'm like, oh, I believe in Yahweh. I believe in the Old Testament. He's smart, brilliant, charismatic, and kind, and that kind of exposure to me, because, you know, I believe in his Old Testament. I believe in Yahweh. Uh, however, the dis- difference is I, I, you know, believe that Yahweh revealed himself in the person of Jesus. But, 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 but he, he believes in the same books. And I, I was questioning, does it, like, does it really matter, right? Does it really matter if you're Jewish or if you're Christian? And I, I'm probably going to be politically insensitive here. <laughs> I'm just telling you my story at this point. And I... <laughs> I had to work it through in my head. What's the big deal? Is it the same? Are our faiths equal? And you know the part I couldn't get, get around? And, and this, this is to me is self-evident. I, I, I could not get around that when I looked myself in the mirror, I saw a sinner. A young man, I knew what it was, what it was like to lust. I knew what it was like to look at bad pictures. I knew what it was like to tell half-truths to either get someone to like me or get me out of trouble. I know the things I thought in my head about people. I know the things that I said about people. And I look myself in the mirror, and one irrefutable truth that I could not get away from is that, Dan Deckard, you are corrupt. And I, I, that should be self-evident to everybody in this room. Not that I'm corrupt, but... <laughs> I just admitted it, so. But you look yourself in the mirror. And you know, that, that was a major piece for me because that, that, that led to the question, okay, well then how is that going to be dealt with? And I, I look at um, Judaism. And you look at Islam. And again, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I just, I realized personally in this moment It doesn't offer me redemption. It doesn't deal with my sin. That is self-evident to me. Islam does not deal with my sin in a way that preserves both God's justice and his love. I mean, either approach, there is no resolve. There is no no closing the loop. There is no logical solution to the fact that I stare at myself in the mirror and I say, I know who I am. 
But there's, there's in that, that time, Christ, I came to the realization, you know, there is only one answer to me. There's only one answer to true redemption, and that is that Christ came to pay my punishment so that I could go free. And it's the, it's the only truth that offers us a way out, that offers true redemption and forgiveness. There's no other way. All, all the other routes, like it or not, are ways of self-redeeming. I mean, the single most important, well, maybe not the single most important question, one of the most important questions is, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to know that I'll be accepted by God? What must I do to live beyond death? What, what must I do? And the answer to that question is, you can do nothing. Because God, in an act of grace, accomplished redemption on your behalf, and all he commands us to do is embrace what he did. That's, that's the way out. All other forms are a, are, are a way of trying to self-redeem. And you know what? No matter how much I look at myself in the mirror and how much I try to be a better husband, a better father, and a better pastor, I still do not measure up. And you know what? This side of the resurrection, I never will. I, I will always be short. But... The beauty of, and the logic and the reasonableness of redemption in Christ is that, you know what, I can look at myself in the mirror and I can say, Dan, you're forgiven because of Christ. And you're loved because of Christ. And you have hope because of Christ. You don't have to fear death because of Christ. You're secure because of Christ. Because of what he has done for me. And that's that's not, that's not only reasonable, it's just downright beautiful. I, I, I honestly don't know, I get it, theologically, we don't buy the truth because it's humbling that God had to do it for us and we can't do anything to gain it. It's humbling to say, and people don't want to be humbled. But man, like what a beautiful truth, what a beautiful God, right? So listen, why, like, like why believe? Creation is literally communicating with us 24-7, all around, everywhere. God's saying, I'm here. I'm big. I'm powerful. And redemption tells us, not only am I big and powerful, but I am loving and I am forgiving. I am redeeming. I'm the person who came after you when you didn't even want me to and brought you home. That's, that's a, to me, that's compelling. And, uh, and that is a, a reason to believe. I, I hope, for those of you who do believe, I hope you'll just, yes, God is good, as Paul would say. And if you don't, man, seriously, just consider. I'm not trying to sell you or push you into anything. I just look at the world around you and um, look at the two options you have, main options, the godless option or the God option. Both of them, at the end of the day, you have to believe or take on faith. But both of those stories look at the evidence very differently. And that there's a compelling case for the fact that God exists, he is glorious, and he has done something to save us. Amen. Father, in this room, I, I pray for those who um, may not know you yet, and maybe this is new, maybe it's not, maybe it's old, or maybe it's just a slightly different take on something old. I pray that you would open hearts, minds, um, the single most important thing, Lord, is to know you and to know that you love us and that 
when we experience that love, it actually changes our hearts and um, inclines us to begin loving others. We thank you, Lord, that you have accomplished this great um, work of, of substitution and sacrifice and redemption for us. And I just pray you'd feed us and, and um, solidify our faith and help us to know, God, that, uh, that you are indeed glorious. And um, there's no one else in heaven or earth that's like you. And um, we trust you, Lord, with our, our lives. We trust you with death. We trust you um, with our future and um, help our hearts to continue to deepen in our faith and understanding of who you are. In Christ's name, amen.